Greetings, comrades and friends. Welcome to the Highland Bunker Podcast. We are in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We are producing our show today in cooperation with the Delaware Call. The Call will become your source for news of the Delaware grassroots and activism and organizing and the local chronicle of class struggle in all three counties of our little shire. Super producer Carl is riding the levels in a brand new secured remote location. And I am very pleased to introduce our guest today. Uh, Kathleen Jennings is a Wilmington native and is also the 46th and current Attorney General of our state. A.G. Jennings, thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you, Rob, for having me here. So in the very first episode of this podcast, uh, in January of 2019, uh, Steve Tanzer, uh, the former legislative aide and proprietor of the Delaware Liberal blog, and I discussed the, uh, the 2018 elections and what we expected uh, from the, the coming General Assembly session. And even though our strong, uh, some of our, our preferred candidates didn't, didn't win, um, Steve was trying to persuade me that we were seeing a major shift in the Overton window. And I actually don't like the idea of the Overton window. I think it's a concept used sort of to assuage political losses. And in material application, vis-a-vis -vis political power, it's not very useful. Um, but that being said, what are your thoughts about your um, 2018 uh, AG primary, uh, and did the campaign process sort of do anything to progress your thinking on specific issues? And if so, um, what are they? Well, the 2018 race, in my view, was absolutely great from beginning to end. And I say that for many reasons, like, okay, number one, I won. <laughs> but, um, but what I saw was a slate of candidates for attorney general. Three of the four primary candidates ran for the same reason. And that was to make our criminal justice system fair and equal for everyone, regardless of race, regardless of money, and regardless of where we live. And our platforms were remarkably similar, um, not always, but remarkably similar. And I think it was a testament to uh, the progress that we have made, uh, and most especially in the Democratic Party, to look at the really important substantive issues of our time and to take courageous stances on those. So, you know, from that perspective, um, it was intellectually interesting. It was... Um, I think challenging to make sure that the public understood, you know, here we are, we, we stand for similar issues and what does and doesn't distinguish us is important. But the beauty of it is that we stand for fairness and justice. The other thing I liked about it was that it was an overwhelmingly positive primary. Um, people stayed on the issues, everyone was very professional, cordial, and fought hard uh, to be the one who was chosen, one who was elected uh, by Democrats in our state. But I felt that it was very positive. And in the last debate, at the very end of our last debate at Delaware State University, 
I thanked everybody on the stage because it represented the best of who we are. Um, to be on the stage with my opponents, all of whom I think were committed uh, to the causes they believed in. So from that perspective, uh, it was a good race. And I will say that it also distilled the issues in a really good way for voters. We, you know, we all came from somewhat different backgrounds in terms of our experience in the system. You know, I, I was a prosecutor for many years. I was a defense attorney for many years. Um, and I prosecuted some of the most violent crimes in our state and I defended uh, many, many cases, including a man who was on death row. And so, you know, I believe that uh, that experience, that the experience of seeing both sides and knowing um, the cause of justice and how important it is um, really rang true with voters, ultimately. Cool. Well, I, I definitely want to dive into some of the, the details or some of the issues you think were, um, were sort of delineated in, in a way people could really understand them, some important issues. Um, but before we do that, I, I kind of wanted to have you describe your approach to the job. I mean, understanding it's a, it's a legal and administrative function. Um, but uh, I'm interested in your mindset because it is an elected position. You do go through a political campaign, and that means it's a political position. So in that context, how do you go about, um, you know, taking courageous stands or, 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 or picking particular issues um, given, that, uh, given that context? W what are the things that you're looking to achieve? So jurisdiction in the Attorney General's office in Delaware is among the broadest in the country. We have complete criminal jurisdiction, unlike most Attorney General offices. We also have a civil division that represents all state agencies and on the administrative side, that's a very important part of our office uh, because they have clients and their clients are the Department of Labor, the Department of Transportation, et cetera, Department of Education. And so um, there is that administrative side which requires us to be really good lawyers, but Attorneys general across the country have tremendous authority to make policy in their office. And when I look at our office, I see it as the Department of Justice. And how do we achieve justice in this state? You know, I've worked in the office for many years, uh, but I never have my name on the door. And well, policy I, I... begins at the top. It begins with leadership uh, on down. And so it was really important uh, that people knew what I stood for. And yeah, then I'm, it was really important that what I stood for was turned into action when I became attorney general. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm so glad you put it in those terms because I sort of try to put it in those terms too, um, that regardless of what the constrictions might be, um, there is an aspect of leadership to it because it is a political position. Um, so it's not just operating the gears, but it is, you know, as you said, making a courageous stance. Um, but you also said it, you have tremendous authority to make policy. So I think we can interrogate that a little bit. Um, but I'd, I'd like to start like this, um, just with the general question and get your, your, feet, your feeling about it. I think it's fairly well understood that for many people in the community, there's a, there's a, there's a distrust of the police. 
Um, they're afraid of the police. Um, they're more afraid of the police than probably anything else in their lives. Uh, why do you think that could be? What I believe has occurred over time is that there has been a rift between police and some of the communities that the police serve. And when the police cease to be uh, part of that community, part of the structure of a neighborhood, then trust begins to break down. I've seen the best in policing uh, in this state, and I believe that begins and ends with community policing. And so, you know, riding around in a car serves a safety function. Um, and I know the police officers have a tremendously difficult job, but each and every one of us as public servants is an ambassador of all the communities we serve. And we can't serve that communities unless and until we know them. And that's why I strongly believe, I passionately believe in community policing. I have seen it work. I've seen it work uh, with the, a gentleman named Dan Seligman, who was a police officer who, uh, whose beat was in West Center City. And when I walked with him, I saw people coming out of their, stopping their cars, coming out of their cars, people coming out of their houses just to talk to Dan. And you know what Dan had done? He knew the people he was serving and he had helped them in very tangible ways. And you know, when it was his birthday, they threw him a block party. Crime I, in that area plummeted under Yeah, I, I, know, I know Lieutenant Dan. We've met. Um, he was active, actually, uh, in, before he um, ran that, that, his area there in West Center City. He was active out here further west. Um, I also know he's no longer with the police. Um, he's doing other kind of, of activism work. I find that interesting, I guess, um, because... You know, I, I, I have down here a lot of details and I don't even want to get into them because it got gratuitous um, as I started going down in some of the, the killings, the beatings, um, the choking, the, the menacing. Um, and the, you, you mentioned a riff. And, and yeah, I guess that um, to me, that riff in the community um, is that until those things are dealt with, the police, as we generally understand them, are not good. And so we can highlight perhaps a particular uh, police officer or maybe even a, a particular department that's, that's doing um, or has some sense of accountability. Uh, but if there's, if there's no real sense of accountability, I don't know whether the, the implementation of community policing or the actions of a few officers, some of them um, didn't stay for whatever reason. I, I don't know what, so I wonder what you think about that, um, that, that context, because we talk about individuals, um, but I think what's creating fear in these communities is more than that. Yeah, so we have to rebuild public trust and I think what is happening now in America with the whole world watching is that people are standing up and saying, we want change. Right now, we, we need a change. And I believe strongly that we do need change, that we need reforms. 
trust breaks down when there is a lack of understanding, a lack of understanding of the communities we serve and a lack of understanding of the role that police officers have. And when we're strangers to each other, it is really easy to blame. But when we know each other, it's very hard because we see each other as human beings and we see each other as marching in the same direction um, toward a greater sense of fairness and justice. The things that will change that dynamic, some of them are just plain old leadership. Um, I believe that Chief Tracy, for example, in Wilmington, you know, he spent a year working on his own department. And he spent a year trying to increase accountability within the department. I think he's done a really good job with that. I'm also very pleased that when protests began in the city of Wilmington, that Chief Tracy was very careful and exercised extreme restraint in terms of arrests. That was the right thing to do. It was a good thing to do. And that really needed to take root in Wilmington and statewide. But, but here's the thing, you know, we have a law enforcement officer bill of rights that is a law in our state. It's by statute. And it keeps all discipline records of police officers secret. So people never know. The public never knows. May I, may I interject a question there? Because I did have a question on that. And, and I think everybody sort of understands that from a from a, uh, from a legal standpoint, this structure exists. Um, but I find it very uh, illustrative, I think, because there's no, we have, we have public agents who pos possess the legal monopoly on the use of violent deadly force to operate in secrecy, um, you know, at least de facto impunity. And I don't understand why that is. Like, what's the concept behind that? Because there's no nurses or firefighters or teachers, um, all, all manner of public servants all over across the board, um, any other kind of citizen or worker. Th these, these laws don't exist. So I'm I, understanding that they're here. What is the rationale? Why are, are we having to deal with this structure? Well, it's in our law. And we have one of the most... Uh, secretive laws in the country, quite frankly. We have been looking at um, studying, talking to police chiefs in jurisdictions like Florida, Arizona, Tennessee, where disciplinary records have been public for decades. They're up on websites. They're up on police department websites. And so if someone has been disciplined for a serious infraction, like, like the use of force, or for not telling the truth, and they've been found to have been lying, it's up there for people to see. I believe that those disciplinary records should be made public. I don't have the power to make them public right now because they're embedded in the law, but I support a change in the law. And let me give you an example of how bad it can be when we don't make them public. There was a Dover police officer a number of years ago who uh, was pursuing uh, a suspect. The man he was pursuing uh, went down to the ground, had surrendered, and the police officer gratuitously walked up to this man's head and with his boot kicked him full force, knocked him out and broke his jaw. 
I authorized the prosecution of that police officer. That case went to trial in Dover, and unfortunately, the jury did not convict. That police officer left the police department, went to another jurisdiction out of state, and someone died in his custody. There should be a database of decertified police officers in this state that is made public, and it should go onto a national database. That's, that's a change that has to happen because we should not allow an officer under those circumstances to go get a job as a police officer elsewhere. And you're right. You know, they have the power at times to determine who lives and who doesn't. That's an awesome power. And to build trust, we need that kind of accountability and transparency. We need to make public those records. And the third thing we need to build that trust is civilian oversight. You know, whether it's a civilian review board that has subpoena power and oversight responsibility when it comes to policies and when it comes to disciplinary records, if there is public involvement in overseeing, I think that will build trust as well. So those three things need to happen as police reforms in Delaware. Let me just uh, touch on a couple of things because uh, Thomas Webster was the was the officer's name uh, who who did someone did die in his custody in Greensboro, and I don't know whether he got the job or he was being considered for a job in in Camden, Delaware, at the Camden Police Force. I don't know if he's currently an officer there, but I know that because of these because of this secrecy, you know, some of these officers are are moved around quite easily. Um, but before I, I want to get to some more details, he is of not. He's not. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> before we go a little further, I, I think I really wanted to interrogate or get your feeling about this idea that, yes, it is law. So we have extreme, um, ex ex sort of extreme secrecy laws uh, for police in particular um, that were made by the legislature. Um, but as a, as a political leader, do do you think that interrogating the reasons that they exist is important in deciding which ones shouldn't exist and what impact that might have had on this community riff? You know, if the people in the if there's this riff, um, but you're saying, you know, these are the special laws we're going up against. The idea that they're there actually means something, I think. Do you know what I mean? And I wonder whether you have any feeling about that. Look, what I feel is that we need to change them. And I'm spending all of my energy to get those changes made. They are all require statutory changes. And I'll add another one to the mix, which is body-worn cameras. I think every police officer in this state should have a body-worn camera who operates um, in a way that deals with the public. And so if you interact with the public, you should be wearing a, a camera. And that camera, Again, it creates transparency, it creates accountability. And I think it's really important that we take that step as a state. We are a small state. We could make this happen. There are 48 police departments in this state. Some of the bigger ones may or may not be able to afford it, but the smaller ones absolutely can't afford it. And so this has to be a statewide effort. And we're working really hard right now with the Police Chiefs Council to make that happen. 
but we have you know, I don't know that it's necessary to go back and say, well, this law was passed for this reason and isn't that a bad thing? I think that some of the reasons the Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights were passed make sense. They wanted to make sure that they had due process rights. But in doing that, you know, things went too far. And I think we need to, to scale that back. They certainly have due process rights and they should um, in disciplinary hearings absolutely have those. But I don't believe that those hearings should be private because they, they cause distrust. Yeah, I guess uh, my, my, just to belabor the point, I guess, since we have the time. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody deserves due process. Every worker deserves a fair uh, review of any incident or any problem. I, I, I get that. Um, I don't, un I guess the, the idea that the police are specifically um, not not given that when when I mean are I haven't heard an uproar about nurses saying that we're scared we're not going if something happens or doctors not going to be given due process the idea that there needed to be special handling um, or some sort of special um, codified law just for a particular type of activity just for a particular type of public service I think. Actually, when people think about it like that, actually does need to be interrogated in some fashion. But again, I, I, I appreciate, um, you know, I appreciate the two, the two changes you mentioned, the body cams um, and the open records. Uh, is there anything else specifically that you're looking at in the law, officers Bill of, law enforcement officer's Bill of Rights um, that would be added to that list of something that you would, uh, you know, you would, you, would, uh, you would support or that you're looking to do? I support progress and I really believe that if we open up disciplinary records for serious infractions, that if police wear body worn cameras, that if we create a statewide do not hire list that is put into the national database so that police officers can't do what Webster did, then that will go a long way. But those aren't the only reforms I think that need to be made overall. I want our office to expand its jurisdiction to review uh, more than shootings. I want us to be able to review uses of force that cause serious injury, whether a gun is involved or not. I want us to have a civil rights law that is long overdue, that gives the Division of Civil Rights and Public Trust the authority to review pattern and practice violations of civil rights by government officials. That exists in the federal law, but I think it needs to exist in state. We want a law passed that says if someone violates an individual's civil rights intentionally, that that's a crime in and of itself. And that's important as well. And so we're seeking to have that law passed. These are all important. And no one change is going to suddenly restore community faith in criminal justice or in policing. But we have to begin and we have to do all of these changes in short order. And I believe that then we will start to see a real turnaround. But you know, it's easy for any of us. Look, when I took office, it was easy during the campaign for people to uh, blame 
and for people to say the criminal justice system, you know, isn't fair and equal for everyone. Agreed, we all ran to make it fair and equal for everyone. But what's really hard is to look inside yourself. It's always easier to blame others. It's harder to look inside ourselves and to say, what can we change? And that's why the day I was sworn in, we looked inside ourselves as prosecutors in the office and said, what, before any law is changed by the General Assembly, because they were great partners with us in criminal justice reform, but before anything happens, what are we doing that we can do differently? That's really important. And I think it's, a, it's an area where I have seen progressive police chiefs, including the man who's the head of the police chiefs council, Pat Ogden, many others who have done that hard look and who have said, wait a second, we need to do this differently. For example, in the protests that occurred in, in Wilmington and Dover and Camden and all over the state, People have a right to protest. Not only do they have a right, they are right to have protests. Most especially in this circumstance where George Floyd was so horribly, tragically murdered by a police officer. And now we have seen repeat acts like this. People are right to do it. And they have a constitutional right to do it. Our country was founded on civil disobedience beginning with the Boston Tea Party, on up to the march John Lewis took over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965. Change does not happen unless there is a public outcry for it. And so it's incumbent upon police agencies, it's incumbent upon our office to zealously guard that right. And I have seen it zealously guarded during these protests. And then when I saw actions where protesters were arrested. Um, I tried to listen to both sides. I did listen to both sides. But I absolutely believe that the prosecution of the Dover protesters um, was wrong. And so we dropped all those charges. And by the way, not one of those protesters was arrested for a violent act. I got attacked by the police union uh, pretty harshly. In fact, very harshly, uh, which is interesting to me because they claim that these were violent protesters. They were not violent. They were charged with the unclassified misdemeanor of disorderly conduct. They were exercising their constitutional rights. And so it is incumbent upon the police to respect that right. It's incumbent upon our office to exercise our discretion to do the right thing and not prosecute them. But it begins with taking a look inside yourself and saying, what can I do differently? Yeah, I, I do agree that, um, you know, it's going to take a lot of effort. Um, I think real organizing is so important in every aspect of this. Uh, you know, I, I truly feel that whatever change whatever changes we would uh, we would want uh, in the cop bill of rights you know if if we were organized to a point where you know every nurse teacher amazon worker postal worker 
teamster and agricultural worker in the state walked off the job, the, special, the, the, the General Assembly would be in special session next week. Now, we're not there, obviously. We're not even close to being there. But I think you're exactly right. When you, when you ha- it, it's going to take all of us together to come to, to, to realize that what we're doing isn't, isn't working. Uh, it's actually tearing at the fabric of what we're supposed to be at together, the rift that you, that you mentioned. And, and, I, and I do think that. And, and I, I'm, I, was, I was happy to hear you use the phrase in short order. Um, because I do think that it's getting, uh, progre- you know, it's getting to a point where you know we do we are seeing a lot of violence in the street, uh, in 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 Wisconsin and and, and different places, um, in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and so yeah, I, I I hope that that can happen. But I have uh, two questions on the short order part. One is you you have a list here: body cam, open records. And then outside of the Bill of Rights, um, expanded jurisdiction for the review of use of force and patterns and, and civil rights uh, acts. So those are the list. What, I mean, you've been talking about a few of them before. W- what kind of forces are we up against? Who's saying that um, you shouldn't be able to uh, investigate other types of use of force, for example? What's the argument that you shouldn't? So we've been talking to the Police Chiefs Council, um, which represents police departments uh, across the state. As I said, there are 48 of them. And the leadership of the Police Chiefs Council agrees with the majority of what we would like to see done. Um, Most police departments in this state want bodywork cameras. They want that transparency. They want to be able to see what their officers are doing, and they want... Uh, to be able to see how the community is responding. I think, I think there are large areas of these reforms where there is agreement and where we can coalesce around them. Then there are the tougher reforms, and those involve changes to the Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights. I'm committed to making those reforms happen as well. I think the biggest thing that we have to do apart from the law enforcement officer bill of rights is to change the use of force statute in our state because the use of force statute gives police um, a protection that doesn't exist in most states in our country and that is that is the police officer's subjective belief that use of force is necessary that is the law of our state it's not an objective standard It's not what a reasonable police officer standard would be. It's not uh, what would a reasonable person do under these circumstances. It's a subjective standard. And first and foremost, we need to change our use of force statute in the state. I came out early on at the beginning (laughs) saying we needed to change that. I think there is political will to change that. And I think there is massive public support for that change. It is in keeping with the majority of statutes in our country. And by the way, in major departments in our state, internal use of force policies use objective standards, reasonable person standards, not subjective like the law reads in our state. That has to change. And I think there is political will to do that. Yeah, and I I hope that um, I always try to look at the, 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 the pushback that you're going to get or the arguments such as they are for someone to say that we shouldn't because I think they're very indicative 
of really kind of what's happening here under you know what what the motivations are behind this architecture that we've built around law enforcement you know if somebody says well no the police need full uh right if you know in whatever reason to use deadly force why well just because they want to so i these things need to be called out very clearly and i do i i do have to give you credit i know that you do take uh you know you do take a lot of stick uh, from the the police organizations, and um, that's a that that's one of the things um, why I would say that's how you know you're doing it right. So I, I appreciate that you 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 taking that. Um, the last thing about the the, the short order and, and just sort of what what the optics are, um, you know the the General Assembly loves the uh, they love the task force, um, so we get the task force, and of course the the head of the task force is. Uh, uh, Franklin Cook, who is an ex-police officer. So we don't, we don't, we get a task force. The GA is out of session, and we have a cop running it. I, 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 it's not the greatest optics, I don't think. Um, I mean, are 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 you strategizing any ways to accelerate this movement or these policies? Yeah. Well, let me let me just say this, um, Representative Cook was a police officer in the Newcastle County Police Department, which I think has done a great job of community policing. They have it in their DNA, so I will say that. He has also worked in the public defender's office. Yeah, and I, I, I and again, this is not, I, I'm, I, 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 all due respect, I, I don't even know a lot of his work. I did know some of his background, and this is not against uh, Representative Cook in any personal way. Um, I'm, I'm sort of talking about the, op the, the machinations of the state um, as they put a task force together and pick a particular person. The fact that he is that particular person is not, um, not germane. It's nothing personal against him. No, I understand. It's just that um, he and I have spoken and he realizes that change has to happen and he supports change happening. He realizes also that he's going to get pushback from, you know, people that he wants served with right <laughs> but he's up to the task and i think he really does want change to happen the the black caucus is committed to change i mean they have a platform of change i have ideas about what it ought to be and i serve on the task force so you know i'm not quiet <laughs> and i'm going to be loud about it and i'm going to push and and to Representative Cook's credit, he has added a number of um, people to the subcommittees, which is where the real work is going to be done, uh, who are you know, publicly activists who were out there protesting and asking for change. And, and so now is the time when people can come together and actually make it happen, right? The next step is how do we coalesce? How do we make it happen? And we make it happen by supporting the changes in the legislature and making their voices loud and proud. Now is the time, make your voices loud and proud. Be out there, call your legislators, show up, well, show up meaning virtually show up at public meetings um, and pay attention to what's going on because that's how we make change. They're really good leaders. I, I, you know, I, I have to really give credit for a lot of the criminal justice reforms to uh, Val Longhurst, House Majority Leader, to um, Nicole Poor in the Senate, and to Darius Brown in the Senate. This 
and I will say about the Black Caucus, the freshman class, plus Representative Bolden, Stephanie Bolden, who is not by any <laughs> stretch of the imagination in the freshman class, but this freshman class is really impressive because they hit the ground running. Mimi Brown, Tizzy Lockman, Darius Brown, you know, and I, could, I don't want to leave anybody out, but I'm just saying this freshman class is powerful and it's going to keep getting more powerful. Yeah, that's, that's why the vote is so important. And I'm telling you right now, I never thought I'd be suing the United States Postal Service, but we will not have our vote undermined in this election. This is one of the most important elections of our lifetime. And we have to get this right. And we have to make sure that everybody's voices are heard. That was an effort at voter suppression, pure and simple. And we stood up and we, we filed a lawsuit against them, several Democratic attorneys general in the country, and we now have one pending. And the congressional leaders in our state stood up. It's, it's you know, you have to really pay attention to what's going on, whether it's in Washington um, or in our own state. And when you pay attention and you have a watchful eye and you have strong advocacy, you are going to see change happen. It ain't gonna be easy. Yeah, it's certainly going to be, I, I think, you know, uh, going back to the, the way that we opened, um, certainly for people, that, me and people who think like me, we were very happy with the results of some of the, uh, the freshmen that came into Dover. Um, and we have an opportunity to really make a, a huge move um, in just a couple weeks' time, um, actually. And so I am excited about that. But on the other hand, I will say that um, you know, and I know COVID had, you know, COVID ever kind of shut everything down. But, you know, in the last two sessions since that election, I, I, I got I have to tell you from an accomplishment standpoint, I'm very underwhelmed. Um, do you know what I mean? So I, I just ask everybody to um, to keep pushing in the same direction and eventually it'll get to that direction. Um, but but I am happy with the, the folks that you mentioned, because, um, you know, at least we're starting to see glacial movement while we didn't before. Um, so I, I'm, I'm happy about that. And I do think it will keep getting, you know, better. I, I really believe we have transformative candidates right now running for office. Uh, Sarah McBride, she's the dynamo. And I think I, she's going to be great. You know, I would Kyle be Evans gay. And <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't also uh, mention my favorites, Medina Wilson-Anton, Larry Lambert, Eric Morrison, um, they would really, it would, that would really be a sea change. Um, I know within the party, uh, we're supposed to pretend that they're not running, and that's fine, but I'm not going to. <laughs> get, Medina, get Medina in. Um, uh, so I, I want to take the time we have left to, to discuss another topic that um, I've been following, actually, for a, a while. Um, I interviewed uh, Dave, David Bentz, the Newark representative, around the beginning of the COVID lockdown. And I expressed some concern based on some of the reporting I was reading from Lex Wilson and others uh, about the conditions in the prison. I mean, we already know um, that they had deteriorated to a point it precipitated a violent uprising in Smyrna. Uh, obviously, that says something about what the conditions must have been for people to do that. Uh, and based on the reporting, they're not really improving. Uh, and so I asked... Uh, David Bentz, whether, you know, there was some consideration of asking for, you know, elderly or nonviolent folks to be released just to try to stem the, the, 
the, the problem because there there wasn't any PPE at that time. Obviously, you know, inmates aren't able to do social distancing. And um, he sort of pushed back and I pushed him back and he got pretty obstinate about it and sort of dropped it. And, you know, I've, I keep mentioning this and, and I wonder what your, your feeling is. And, and I know um, the resentencing efforts, a, a lot of that's out of your hands. And, and I understand from an from a administrative aspect that, and a legal aspect that may be true. Uh, but I'm just wondering what your, what your feelings are about um, the situation in the prisons generally um, and COVID uh, specifically. It's a tough job to be the commissioner of corrections. Um, I think it may be one of the toughest jobs in the state. I think Claire DeMattias is a strong leader and she has really been pushing um, for more programming in the prisons. And I think, you know, rightfully so. And she has not, you know, she got hit with COVID just like everybody else did. And I think it's been a real struggle. Um, first of all, you know, we can't behave the way we used to. We had, we had so many great plans uh, underway. For example, with the Restaurant Association, we were working directly with the Restaurant Association to increase the number of people coming out of prison who could be hired. We were working directly with the contractors uh, in this state to both hire, train, and employ, you know, in livable wage jobs, very good livable wage jobs, people who had come out of the system. You know, we hired Corey Priest, and, you know, his purpose is community engagement. He represented a lot of what we saw as promise in other people. And so, you know, COVID has changed the dynamic in so many big ways, but your specific questions about, you know, releasing prisoners, the detention population in uh, Delaware's prisons dropped by 20%. And uh, overall prison population continues to decline. There have been specific cases that have been brought to the attention of the state um, by either the Office of Defense Services or the correction department. And we've reviewed those and the courts have reviewed some of those and said, you know, this person merits release or this person does not. You know, it's not something that I have control over, that Claire has control over, or uh, that the courts alone have control over. It's everybody working together. And I think we've been doing that. We've been really, really um, working hard over the last year and a half since I've been in office to make sure that people aren't sitting in jail pending trial because they're too poor to afford bail. Years ago, um, Chief Justice Strine was, uh, used to cite a statistic that was stunning to me. He said that 60% uh, of the pretrial detention population, so they haven't been adjudicated guilty, they're waiting for their trial, that 60% of them were sitting in jail for $1,000 bail or less. That means they couldn't come up with 100 bucks to pay a bail bonds person. So, you know, that's imprisoning poverty. If they're not a danger to society, why in the heck are they sitting in jail? And so we have made a lot of efforts, successful efforts, to reduce the detention population. But I think at the same time, we have to look at reality. 
we can't release someone who is flat out of danger. You know, I forgot what state it occurred in, but someone was released due to COVID and he went out and killed his, the rape victim who um, was going to be testifying against him. That's just horrific and it causes tremendous harm, tremendous harm. I mean, that woman, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the, the horror of that. So, so what I'm trying to say is we have to be careful about how we do this. And I think that's exactly what Claire is doing. At the same time, are there people that we should be reviewing? Yes, and we are trying to review them. Most definitely people who are in jail for drugs. Yeah, I know that um, there was a uh, House Bill 4, I think, and the only detail I know about it is you were uh, it was removing nonviolent drug crimes from felony list. Um, is there any? And I don't know what the status of that is. Was there anything else in that bill that would do some of these sort of things where we can get people out of that pipeline? Because my my position is always like, whatever programs we can do or whatever you know money we can kind of throw at it. I mean. You can only make a you can only make a gulag so nice, like it can only be so nice, and so we have to be very careful how we how we use the tool of locking somebody in a cage. As you said, I, I, there are violent people that need you know that that, that need that uh, for whatever reason, and they should have services there, as you said, um, to try to do some rehabilitation uh, for whatever they need, whether it's you know addiction, mental health, whatever. Um, but th my concern is that front end, too, is, is, is looking at people, not putting them in jail for bail, um, you know, not treating drugs like a violent offense and that type of thing. So I'm interested if there's anything else in that bill that, um, that you're looking at to, to try to really support and push through. Sure. So we can talk about House Bill 4. Let's back up just a little bit. Um, Tizzy Lockman was the prime sponsor of a drug bill in uh, 2019 that we had drafted and worked on with her and advocated for in the legislature. And that was to remove the aggravating factors from drug crimes that elevated a simple possession into a felony. Because in looking at the data, what we found out is that 70% of black people were arrested for felonies based on those aggravators whereas white people were getting misdemeanors. And the reason is because the aggravator is concerned where you live. So if you possess a, a drug within a thousand feet of a park, a playground, a school, a church, all of a sudden you're looking at a felony, whereas a white person in the suburbs who doesn't live within a thousand feet of any of those things looks at a misdemeanor. So we tried to take a lot of the aggravating circumstances and remove them from our drug laws because they were disproportionately affecting black people who live in urban environments. That's the kind of change that is directly related to race. Where you see racial injustice, you need to do something about it in our laws and in the way we practice. And so that was a really big measure and, and Tizzy did a great job um, making sure that law got passed. It passed, by the way, on a bipartisan basis, which was really good. Because I think when people saw the net of racial disparate impact of that law, then they were willing to vote for it. Um, 
but we have to be that race conscious about things. So House Bill 4, we fully support House Bill 4. It creates a Sentencing Accountability Commission. Right now, we have a Sentencing Accountability Commission that dates back to 1991, I believe, when Truth and Sentencing started. We need a commission that really studies things like I just talked about. What is the racial impact of this law? What is the racial impact of a certain sentence? Why do we have the sentences we have? Are they evidence-based? Do they result in somebody who comes out in better shape or worse shape than when they went in? And are they proportionate to the crimes that occur? That's going to require a sentencing commission to study those things. And we were well on our way, thanks to Representative Longhurst, to having all of that coalesce into House Bill 4 and get it passed. And, you know, it had to wait till the next session and COVID hit. But we are still going to be pushing that because I think that, I think that bill will be transformative. The other bill that was transformative in sentencing um, is the one where we restored judicial discretion to sentencing for most crimes. There were so many minimum mandatory crimes in our code, and they all had to be sentenced consecutively, one on top of the other. And so people were getting exorbitant sentences because of the number of minimum mandatory crimes in any one case. And what we said is, we have the best judges in the country. Do they make mistakes? Yeah. But you know what? They're appointed by the governor. They're vetted by another body, the Judicial Nominating Commission. They're appointed for their judgment and experience. And we ought to let them use it. I know of judges who have left the bench because they felt like they had no discretion anymore in sentencing. That's not what we want our judges to do. We want them to be able to exercise discretion because I believe they'll do the right thing. Well, last question. Let's make it, we'll make it a fun one because you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned evidence-based and I thought that was neat because um, by all accounts, and I've been studying this very closely most of my life, the uh, recreational use of marijuana is fine. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I feel like I'm an expert at it. You know, I've been training and, and making sure that it's safe for everyone. Um, so based on that evidence and other actual scholarly evidence, um, <clears throat> what, what's the holdup? Uh, is it, I mean, the, the word on the street is that, it, you know, it's, it's either one of two things. It's Governor Carney's particular uh, sort of affinity against it. Uh, or it's another tool, obviously, that the police can use because, it, you know, it does have a particular smell that's very evident. Uh, so that can be used, but it's used, uh, you know, discretionally. Um, but what, what's the holdup here? I mean, now that we have, um, you know, prescription marijuana, so now it's de facto legal uh, for, you know, a majority of the population if they were to pursue that. Um, you know, what's, what's, your, what's your take on it? What do you think? I think it should be legal. Well, we're just going to leave it right there, folks. <laughs> like Colorado is doing just fine, right? And other states that have legalized it, Canada, they're doing just fine. So <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's, it's one of those situations that 
if we just did it, people would say, oh, the world didn't come to an end, right? And, you know, it's, it's a drug, so it needs to be regulated, and we need to obviously keep it out of the hands of children, and we need to make sure that uh, the people who sell it are being responsible. But I can tell you, um, let me just give you a, a little bit of a story, but it's really, I think, telling. You know, people always equate sort of heavy-duty drug dealing with violent crime because, you know, people fight over territory, dealers fight over territory, et cetera, et cetera. And it sometimes leads to violence. A lot of the home invasions we have seen in Delaware, and I don't think it's a majority, but I would say it's a not insignificant minority of them, are because the home invaders know people have a fair amount of marijuana in their house. I mean, it, and that's what gets stolen. So my, my thought is, why in the world are we still dealing with this? Let's legalize this. And we can deal with it out in the open. And I think it's going to cut down on the amount of violent crime in our state. And I think it's a good thing. I just, uh, you know, we do have civil, we do have citations now for uh, one ounce or less of marijuana. And I have publicly stated that I will not criminally prosecute the mere possession of marijuana. Absent some other crime that accompanies it that should be prosecuted. And so, you know, most of those cases get diverted into uh, a specialty court that deals with drugs. I'm not even sure most of those cases need to be in a drug court at all. And so we are not, for the most part, prosecuting those cases. If there is an arrest, we are diverting them. And that's the right thing to do. But we just need to get over it. It needs to become uh, legal. Yeah, I think that's that says a lot about a, a lot of the things we we hold ideas and and I I asked uh, Governor Carney maybe four years ago three or four years ago a similar question and he said he was just he wanted to see how the information and how it panned out in Colorado well it's been five years I think as you said um, the the world didn't end everything's just operating f almost the same as it did before um, so yeah I, I hope. Uh, that issue and all of the issues that we talk about, people sort of start looking at them and, and realizing that there's a way to change them. Uh, we have to keep doing all of the things that we're doing to try to do it. Um, but I, I know that um, that you stepped up and, and, and taken a lot of action and said a lot of things that um, are, are definitely a, uh, a point in the right direction. So I, I know I can tell you that, um, I don't even know if we'll keep this in, but I, I know that there was an action at your home uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I hope, I mean, um, I can tell you that, you know, that's an action at the attorney general's home, not Kathleen Jennings' home. Um, that's, uh, you, you, I'm sure you know that. Um, but I also know that um, you took some time with some families to speak with them uh, subsequently. And uh, I can tell you that uh, myself and, and activists and organizers I know really appreciate that. And I hope that you continue to do that. Um, Thank you. Thank so, you. And look, I, I signed up for this. I'm a big girl and yeah. I completely understand it and completely respect the constitutional right of people to protest. And, and so wherever they choose to. So I, you know, it's fine with me. I, I think reform happens when people are loud and proud, you know, 
So I get it. I, I absolutely um, align myself with it for the most part. So, so I hope that um, our conversation has been helpful. And I just do really quickly want to give one quick shout out because Governor Carney and I don't agree on marijuana, but I was really glad of, about his executive orders banning chokeholds. Um, making Delaware participate in a national database of decertified officers. Um, some of those changes were really instrumental in, in getting the ball rolling uh, for this task force. So I, I do want to give him credit for that. He's, he's anybody had a tough who, job. Anybody who gives credit to the governor, we usually cut it out. But you've, <laughs> you've, you've, you've been so kind with your time, I guess we'll have to keep that one. Uh, well, Rob, it's really been great to talk with you. It's it's um, it's an experience. It's kind of a well, unique experience that I hope <laughs> I get to do again. Yeah, we, I've been telling everyone who's local. Uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, we've shut the uh, we've shut the studio down. So some folks have been in, like Matt Meyer has been in, but Leo Strine, we had to do like this. Um, so yeah, I, I'll, I'm happy to invite anybody back uh, when we can actually do it back. So sounds good. All so right. thank. A.G. Jennings, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate your time. Left his best, everybody. Thank you.